Chapter 19 of The Goddess, a Demon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Goddess, a Demon by Richard Marsh Chapter 19 I Leave the Court As for the coroner, he was prejudiced against me directly. I took up my stand at the table, he being one of those diminutive opuscula who instinctively object to a man who is of a reasonable size. My height has been against me more than once. It placed me at a disadvantage then. There was not a creature present in the room who did not look upon me as a sort of rarey show, and who was not prepared to enjoy the spectacle of my being put to confusion nor had they longed away for the sort of pleasure they desired. I made a hash of things almost from the start. The little fellow, who had informed us that he had been instructed by the treasury, took me in hand. He might have been a cousin of the coroner's. He, too, had sandy hair and the same peevish countenance. His questions at first were not particularly objectionable, but ere long they became of a kind which, if I had my way, I would have been careful not to answer in any fashion save one. He had a trick of holding his hands in front of him, fidgeting a piece of paper between his fingers. His voice was, like himself, small and insignificant. When he chose, it had a singular penetrating quality, which, for some reason, reminded me of the sound of sawing wood. He kept his eyes fixed almost continually on my face, glancing hungrily from feature to feature as if desirous not to miss the movement of a muscle. Altogether he was like some pertinacious terrier who worried not only in the way of business, but also for sport. I should like to have taken him by the scruff of the neck and shaken him. He wanted to know if Edwin Lawrence had been a friend of mine, how long I had known him, what I knew about him when I had seen him last. I told him about the game of cards, but somewhat to my surprise, he made no allusion to my loss, nor the terms on which we parted. And here began my blundering. I wished the court to understand that at parting we were on the worst possible terms, and that I was in just the proper mood for committing murder. But Jordan, that was the little terrier fellow, would have none of it. He told me to confine myself to answering his questions, and that I would have an opportunity of making any statement on my own account which the court might think fit to allow when he had done with me. I wished to make my statement then, but with him against me, and the coroner, and an ass of a foreman, who said that the jury were unanimously of opinion that I was wasting time, I never had a chance. He had his way, then began the real tug of war with his very next question. He asked me if after I had retired to rest, I had been disturbed in the night. Then I saw a chance to score, after all. I said I had by a dream, but when I was about to tell him of that mysterious vision, he stopped me. Never mind about the dream. Dreams are not evidence. Some of the audience tittered. I am not the faintest notion what at. I should have liked to supply them with an adequate reason. But my dream is evidence, very much evidence. If you will let me tell it you, it will throw more light. Thank you. But you were disturbed by nothing beside a dream, for instance, by someone coming through your bedroom window? I was not. Mr. Ferguson, take care. Do you say that no one came through your window? I say that I was not disturbed by anyone. I see. 
You are particular about the form in which the question is put. I will alter it. I ask you, did anyone come through your bedroom window after you had retired to rest? I decline to answer. It's no business of yours. I suppose I can have what visitors I choose. Do you suggest that the visit was intended for you, in your bedroom, alone, at that hour of the night? Consider what your suggestion implies. I never said that anyone came. You as good as said so, but we will have it in from you in another form. Who was it, Mr. Ferguson, who came through your bedroom window? Beads of perspiration were already standing on my forehead. I have told you, I shouted, that I decline to answer. Jordan turned to the coroner. Perhaps you will allow me to explain, Mr. Coroner, that the police are in possession of a body of evidence which tends to implicate a particular person. This fact the witness is aware of and resents. He has not only thrown obstacles in the way of the police, but has gone so far as to assert his own guilt. That this assertion rests on no basis of truth, there can be no sort of doubt. Its only purpose can be to throw dust in the eyes of the police, and especially to render his own evidence ineligible. His own evidence is of capital importance. And I ask your assistance, Mr. Coroner, in my endeavor to prevent miscarriage of justice, owing to Mr. Ferguson's refusal to answer any questions which I may put to him. Certainly. Witness, you will answer any proper questions which are put to you at once and without any beating about the bush. I rather fancy that's the point on which I shall please myself. The coroner banged his hand upon the table. Don't speak to me like that, sir, or you'll find yourself in the wrong box. If you don't answer the questions which are put to you, I'll commit you for contempt of court. Commit? I should have liked to commit assault upon the coroner, but he thought proper to ignore my challenge and addressed himself to Mr. Jordan. Put your question again. I'm amazed to find a person of the apparent position of the witness behaving in so discreditable a manner. Now, Mr. Ferguson, I ask you again. Did anyone come through your bedroom window after you had retired to rest? And I say to you, Mr. Jordan, that you have my sympathy in the position in which you find yourself. Don't you think if I were to put one or two questions to you, it might vary the monotony? You hear, Mr. Coroner, what the witness says? I do, and I regret to find that such conduct can be treated with levity. A titter had gone round the room. If there is that sound again, I will immediately have the court cleared. Witness? Look at me. If you desire it, with the greatest pleasure, though there doesn't seem to be much to look at. How dare you speak to me like that? No offense, my dear Mr. Coroner, a plain statement of a plain fact. Have you been drinking, sir? That is said with an insolent intention. Is it impossible for an official person to be courteous? Your behavior is most extraordinary. You evidently cannot realize the serious nature of the occasion which brings us here. Are you aware, sir, that if you decline to answer the questions which are put to you, I can commit you to prison for contempt of court? I am not aware of any reason why impertinent questions should be answered on one set of circumstances rather than another. Don't argue with me. Will you answer the question which counsel has put to you? My good Mr. Coroner. I commit you for contempt. Officer, arrest this man. If the gentleman in question is wise enough to take my seriously offered advice, he will not attempt to do anything so foolish. Hume, who was sitting opposite, rose and leaned toward me across the table. Are you stark mad? What useful purpose do you propose to serve by going to goal? Or what good do you suppose you will do her by fumbling with the questions? 
You will have to speak out sooner or later. Speak out now. Tell the truth. That is the only way in which you can do our service. Jordan struck in, still twirling the scrap of paper into spirals with his finger. Might I ask you, Mr. Coroner, to request your officer to refrain for a moment from carrying out your instructions? Perhaps Mr. Ferguson may be disposed to listen to this gentleman's wise and friendly counsel. Don't you think, sir, that you had better? I laughed. I do. I'm prepared to answer any questions which you may put to me. That is more promising. I assure you that I have no desire to do or say anything to hurt your feelings. I believe I know what they are, and I respect them. But I must do my duty, and you must do yours, and I do not think that you will hurt anyone by doing it. Don't lecture me, man. Now tell me, did anyone come through your bedroom window after you had retired to rest? No one. That you swear? Miss Bessie Moore did not come through your window? Certainly not. How dare you drag in that lady's name? Was she in your room at all that night? She was not. Did you go up between one and two in the morning to tell the housekeeper that she had come through your window? I did not. Did the housekeeper come down and find her in your room? She did not. Did Miss Bessie Moore spend the night in the housekeeper's apartments? I can't say. Can't or won't? Can't. Are you aware that you have sworn to speak the truth? I am. Are you acquainted with the pains and penalties of perjury? My good man, pray don't, even by inference, attempt to measure others' ignorance by the standard of your own. As you will, so long as we know that we are not dealing with one who is wholly illiterate. Have you seen this cloak before, Mr. Ferguson? From a bag which Inspector Simons produced from beneath the table, he took, as I had expected, the plum-colored cloak. I have. Where? In my room, and on my cousin's back. On your cousin's back? Not on Miss Moore's? Certainly not. Have you never seen Miss Moore wearing it? Never. To the best of your knowledge and belief, this is not Miss Moore's cloak? Nothing of the kind. That you swear? You have already reminded me that I am on my oath. It is necessary to keep that fact always before you, Mr. Ferguson. Then if Miss Moore says this cloak is hers, she will be stating what is false? When Miss Moore makes such a claim, it will be time to discuss it. Don't let us be suppositious. Very well, I will not put to you any more questions, Mr. Ferguson, at present. But don't suppose for a minute that I have done with you. I have to inform you, Mr. Coroner, that this witness has been uttering a series of perjuries, well knowing them to be perjuries, for the obvious purpose of defeating the ends of justice. And I have to ask, at the very least, a watch be kept upon his movements. He shall be detained. Detained? I laughed. I buttoned my coat across my chest, and I walked out of the room. The people made way to let me pass as if I had been the plague. Possibly it was because they saw something in my appearance which they did not altogether like. A constable stood at the entrance. I motioned him with my hand to move on one side. He moved aside. I saw that there was a key in the lock on the outer side of the door. I had an inspiration. It was a solemnly constructed door, not one of your flimsy constructions made of matchwood, but a good honest piece of woodwork, not to be easily forced from the inside. I drew it to, locked it, and slipping the key into my pocket, I walked down the stairs out into the street. The court, for all I knew, continued sitting. End of chapter 19